good morning, uh, Living Hope Church. It's good to be with you here today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, would you mind turning to the uh, book of Second Thessalonians, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 6 through 18. We're going to close out the, uh, the book of Thessalonians today. The theme uh, of our letter is stand firm. As we are summarizing it. The church in Thessalonica, when Paul wrote this letter, had all kinds of different things that they were dealing with. They're dealing with persecution and affliction. They were dealing with hardship. In their surrounding area, there was increasing lawlessness, increasing wickedness. So they were just seeing, as they were trying to live lives that were honoring to God, as they were seeking purity, as they were growing in faith, uh, they were doing so in a, in a land around them that was increasingly becoming more wicked. They were also uh, living and, and wondering about the return of Christ. When would it be? They'd heard Paul teach about it. They were excited about the return of Christ, but there was some confusion. So Paul wrote this letter to help them to remain firm in faith that Christ had not yet returned. He will. He certainly will. And they had not missed it. But they are to continue standing firm in the faith, even though they're enduring affliction, even though there's persecution, even though the land around them is increasing in wickedness. And they are to remain in faith. Stand firm. Don't give up hope, but grow in faith. So now uh, we turn to uh, this last section. Uh, and before we get to uh, what we call the benediction, starting in verse 16, Paul is kind of going to be addressing an issue that was unique to this church. Uh, so let me go ahead and read this our passage today in its entirety. If you don't have a Bible, once again, we do have some blue Bibles on the back table there. Please avail yourself of that. Otherwise, read with me, if you will, Second Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were, we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
Lord, we thank you for this word. And God, as we gather together to listen to your teaching for us this day, Lord, we ask that you would feed us from your word, that you would draw us near to you, that you would challenge us and encourage us, God, that you would give us the peace that you promised at the end of this letter. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section is uh, uh, that we're talking about really is a long session that is warning against something called idleness. Now, every church is full of sinful people, you may have noticed. Every church has its problems. Big churches, small churches, country churches, city churches, suburban churches, because churches are filled with people who are redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we all have sins that we struggle with. And sometimes there's like a certain kind of sin that, that plagues a certain congregation. Or it's, it's, it's something that is notable in a congregation. First Corinthians, uh, this, is this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, it seems like they had all the sins they were dealing with, particularly sexual sins. But the Thessalonians, there seems to be one kind of prevailing sin that seems to be happening at least with a few of the members, and that was this idea of idleness. That there were certain people that were not actually working for a living. They were bums. <laughs> to put us a theological word, I think. That they, uh, they were walking in idleness, not according to the tradition, uh, that Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy had set for them. And as such, they were acting sinfully. They should be, and they should be avoided by other people in the, in the congregation. That seems to be the issue that was happening. That was the problem. So, this issue is not new. Let's take a look at a bit of the background that was going on in this church. First of all, when, when Paul and his fellow workers were there previously, they had provided the Thessalonians with a tradition. We're, we're going to call it that word just to summarize all that was happening. First of all, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, they lived, they worked hard among them. So when, when they were there as an apostles, as, as travelers, uh, they could have, they could have asked that the church provide for all their needs, that they provide them with lodging and housing and food and all those things. But Paul, he said, even though that was my right as an apostle, I, di- I didn't avail myself of that. I worked hard. I didn't take a piece of bread from you without paying for it, he says here. He didn't want to be a financial burden to the church because he knew that, that all of that would be from the donations of the church. And he said, that money has other uses. I don't want to take that for myself. Now, so, so first of all, he let them, he set them an example. And they were, and secondly, they were to follow this example because he was saying, hey, this is not just something that apostles do. This is something that Christians should do. He says, this is an example for you to emulate, for you to imitate us. This is the normal way of Christian living. That they also, the Thessalonians, should work hard to provide for themselves and to not rely on the church's benevolence for their sustenance when it's not necessary. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Thirdly, uh, he gave them specific commands this time. He, he says it wasn't just in this letter, but previously he'd given them a command in person. Remember he said, I told you at that time, if someone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If any of you know uh, American history, you remember uh, in Jamestown, the, uh, the colony of Jamestown, uh, the first permanent English colony in America, in Virginia, 
uh, when they when they first landed, thing, things went really bad for Jamestown. But one man, Adam Smith, uh, realized that hey, everybody needs to work if this colony is going to survive. And he's kind of famous for quoting this: "If you won't work." You won't eat because there were some there were some people who were of a higher class who were expecting everyone else to do the the work. He says, "Nope, everyone's working," and he's actually one of the reasons why that the colony survived as long as it did. So Paul, had, when he was there, he'd given them this command: "If you're not willing to work, let him not eat." And then also in the previous letter in First Thessalonians, Paul had written something similar. He said in First Thessalonians four ten through twelve, "But we urge you, brothers." To do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. And so with all of this, it seems like Paul's not just tacking this on at the end of the letter, that it's a problem that just arose. This has been an ongoing thing, that there are some in this congregation that Paul's had been a personal example to, that he'd given specific instructions to in person, that his previous letter in First Thessalonians, his first letter, he'd warned them against this, and now he's warning them again a second time. Which, which teaches us that there were some people who were sinning in this way at the church, in the congregation, and who hadn't changed, who hadn't repented, who hadn't gotten the hint yet, even though they'd, they'd seen example and command and, and they had multiple opportunities to know what they were doing wasn't right. But what's all the big fuss? Why, why is this a big deal? I think it's important for us to pause and just take a look at some of the theology behind this. Because Paul isn't just being like, you know, firm and he's not just saying, oh, hey, let's, let's just be hard workers. Like Paul is, what he, Paul is teaching is in line with what the, the rest of scripture teaches us about God's design for us and for work. We go all the way back to Genesis. We always Always go back to Genesis. Genesis 2.15, we learn firstly that God created us to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's something we learned from the very beginning that what God created. He made us, he equipped us physically, mentally, emotionally, everything about us in order to maintain and to grow all that we put our hands to. God gave mankind dominion over this world to work it and to keep it, to manage, to grow it so that it would be fruitful. And there's this neat idea that theologians talk about that, you know, you had the garden which was like a paradise, but then outside the garden was wild. It was untamed, right? And part of what God's will for mankind in the beginning was not just to hang out in the garden where it was safe, but to grow the garden so eventually paradise would cover the whole earth. They would subdue the earth and bring order to it, grow the garden, maintain it. So you see this neat idea that the world was a wild place outside of paradise, and God sent man to work the garden to keep it, expand it, so he would bring God's peace and order to all the world. If that was a good thing, God would provide for all of mankind's need. It would be a joy to work. It wouldn't be this drudgery, but mankind would see the joy of our work. And you've experienced that, right? You've experienced where you put a lot of hard work into a project. Sometimes it's as simple as just cleaning the house, getting ready for life group or something, right? You put a lot of order, you put a lot, and it's like, oh, finally, the house is clean, right? Or a project is done, or your shift is over, and you've accomplished something. Right? There's joy in that. That's a hint, right? That's a hint that that's the way God made us. But we all know that work isn't all joy. 
Some of us really love to work, right? We, we enjoy it. Some of, and some of us are allergic to it, right? The fact of the matter is, is that even though God created us for work and it's a good thing, that sin, as it always does, entered the picture and, and corrupted it. After the fall of mankind, toil and frustrating labor were introduced. Introduced as a curse, actually. Genesis 3.19, that as a means to, to as a means of, of discipline and curse, God laid this down in Genesis 3.19. He said to the man, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God made a world where we are to work, and yet now, because of sin and the curse, uh, work is still required of us, but it's frustrating. And it's hard, right? The earth does not cooperate with us. Our printers do not cooperate with us. The things that are supposed to work don't. We lose the tools that we're supposed to use to do our job. People frustrate us and don't do the things that we ask of them. We run out of equipment. A shipment doesn't come in. Things fall apart. And God is teaching us something, right, in this. Just as we rebelled against God and didn't do what he called us to do, now the creation, now the task that we're supposed to do is like rebelling against us, right? And so it's frustrating. It's hard. Even if you enjoy your job, it, it, it's hard on your body, it's hard on your mind, it sucks up your time. There's, there's, it's like a, there's a mixture of joy and frustration and fatigue. Creation rebels against us, so to speak. And, and the thing is, is we still have to put food on the table. We still have to get work done. We still have to clothe ourselves and clothe our family and pay our bills and pay our mortgage and, and put gas in the car and all those things. But they're not a given, right? They're hard. And, and, and as a matter of fact, if we don't work hard, starvation and, 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 and hardship and lack and need are not only possible, they're, it's a certainty, right? Kind of like if you stop mowing the yard, like it's going to get overgrown. If you stop cleaning the house, it's going to become a wreck, right? We, we have to work. And so that's why it's by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. There's labor and toil introduced into our work. Whether we're working inside the house or out, things fall apart. And it's important for us to understand this is the state of affairs, by the way, that is going to characterize our entire life in this age until the return of Christ. Now, science and technology and maybe, maybe government pro, um, uh, programs may, may help alleviate some of this, right? Sometimes it makes it worse. But until we return to the dust, life is going to be this way. There's always going to be some amount of struggle. Even if you work your whole life and you retire, there's going to be this, this like fear, like what if the money runs out or what if something happens or... But there comes a day when we will dwell on the new earth and we'll be free and the earth will be freed from this curse and we will enjoy a world without this toil. However, just as the pain in childbirth, the curse of the chain of uh, the pain of childbirth remains, so does this. It's a reality of life we must deal with. We have to work hard to eat, to drink, to clothe ourselves, to pay our bills, to provide for our families. We see, though, that as we continue on, that God uses this call to diligence. Throughout the rest of scriptures, God calls us, therefore, to work diligently, right? He uses this as a means of providing for us. 
All right? God wants us to be provided for, but he calls us to work diligently. First of all, we see the Sabbath command, right? The fourth commandment, where God says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, there's different views as to if is the Sabbath command still in effect. I think there's still agreement that a Sabbath principle is still in effect, right? We are still called to this pattern of working hard, doing all of our labor in a set amount of days, and then having a day of rest from our work, which we all enjoy. But you see that even in God's command, there was this pattern of laboring, doing all your work. We see in the Proverbs, right? There, there's the, the Proverbs demonstrate that there is wisdom in being diligent, right? Being hard at work. And there's foolishness and harm that comes with being idle or lazy. Or this great word that Proverbs uses, being a sluggard. Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 24, the sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. By the way, that sounds a lot like what Paul's saying, right? You don't work, you don't eat. Proverbs 21.25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. So you just see this, there's this continuing pattern of command and just even in the Proverbs wisdom of just God's people are called in the midst of, because we're living under a curse and work is hard and starvation and nakedness and need and want, all those things are a reality that we face. This is a dangerous life. Hard work is necessary. And so God commands it, but it's also a wise thing. And God promises to use our hard work, to use our diligence as a means of providing for us. So we see in, in the gospel that Matthew, uh, one, of my, one of the sweetest sections we always go back to in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus understands our need. Jesus knows that there's a fear of us not being able to provide for ourselves. Our needs are real. And God promises to take care of his people. In Matthew 6, 31 and through 33, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's a great promise there, right? God is saying, Hey, I will take care of you. God will clothe and feed, and house, and take care of his people. Now he does call, he's not just saying, hey, sit back and do nothing. There's a means by which he does that, which is an encouragement to diligent work, right? Now there's, there's two other things I want to mention about this. Later on we see in the, in the gospel, in, in the epistles, that there is still this ongoing requirement uh, for Christians that a believer must provide for his relatives, and especially his own household, as he is able. Right, first Timothy five eight, Paul writes, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, listen to this, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whew. Paul takes this seriously, right? A Christian has responsibility, therefore, to take care of his or her own family, to provide and clothe and feed and nourish our children, but also extended family when there is need. 
And it is a blessed and God-honoring thing to care for it and to take care of nephews and nieces, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aging parents when necessity arises, grandchildren, to bring in grandchildren. It's a blessed thing when Christians open up their homes to those in their, in their extended family. And he says, and Paul is really firm on this. He says, even the unbelieving world understands that, right? You take care of your family. Much more should Christians. And that's why he so strongly says, if, if Christians aren't willing to do that, man, they, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. That's strong language. There's a responsibility for Christians to work, to be diligent inside the home and outside. But lastly, as we're kind of looking through this theme of, of diligence and hard work, uh, throughout the scriptures, the church also has a responsibility to care for those in genuine need who have no means to provide for themselves. This is one of my favorite pictures of what the church is. The church is the temple of God. It is the building of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is the household of God. God's the father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, man, even the unbelieving world knows you take care of your family, right? Even the mafia knows you take care of family. <laughs> so how much more should the, the household of God take care of, of one another? Those who are genuinely in need. James goes so far as to say in James one twenty seven, <clears throat> Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. In 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 15, uh, we see that the early church had a system of supporting widows, and particularly those who had lost their husbands. In this, in, the, in that economy at the time, there was no social security. Okay, there was nothing like that where they could lean upon. They had to lean upon their church, right? Especially if their husband died or something. Or, um, and so the church actually had, they would, had a system of enrolling widows, like enrolling, <laughs> so they could have, they would pay for their needs, support them, um, all throughout their lives. But of course, resources were limited in the church, right? This was all through donations. So they actually had like, hey, if you're going to remarry, then we need to take you off the roll, right? And there were certain stipulations as to uh, who they could take on, especially because it was important not to be an unnecessary burden to the church. Um, but they really, the church was designed to help those in genuine need. So with all of this in mind, we come back to Thessalonians. And Paul is writing, not for the first or second time, but for like the third or fourth time, with frustration, I'm sure, that there were some in Thessalonica, probably particularly some men, who just weren't working. Who were idle, who were sluggards, who were in violation of the Sabbath principle. They were not providing for themselves, or potentially even their family. And, uh, and some commentators say, well, maybe this was because they thought the return of Christ was imminent. And they're like, oh, well, if Christ is coming back like right away, maybe we should like quit our jobs and just wait for him. Well, that's not <laughs> what Paul commanded. They were to continue in faith, continue living, and being watchful. But it wasn't, here's the problem. It wasn't that they were, they had a justified reason for being this way. It wasn't because they were unable to work because they were, they were older or because they were in poor health or some other temporary or long-term solution. It, there are justifiable reasons why people wouldn't work, even today. But rather, Paul's warning is not for those who are unable, but those who are unwilling to work. For them, he has some hard words. 
These brothers were not working, but instead it appears that they were relying upon the church in benevolence for their livelihood, not due to necessity, but due to their own irresponsibility. Therefore, the church, and this is why it was so hard, because then the church was in a position where they would have, may have been providing to meet their needs, but they were eating up the funds so then that church is unable to provide for the needs of others who are really in need in the congregation and in the greater world, orphans and widows. What a shame that would be. Imagine that there were people, orphans and widows, in the congregation who the church is not able to meet their needs as much as they could because there's some guys over here that just don't want to work. That's shameful. And so these men, their behavior isn't just unfortunate. It's not just embarrassing, but it was sinful. It's hampering the church's ability to fulfill its mission. Supporting missionaries, sending the God, and there's so many other things that God, that, that the church could be doing that they can't. So Paul had addressed this multiple times. He, he, he's proclaimed it. He's, he's lived, lived as an example before them. He's not telling them to do anything that he himself hasn't done. He's commanded them in his previous letter and still they have not changed and repented. And so there's two commands that we have to consider. The first, the Holy Spirit, speaking to the apostle, commands these idle brothers to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Simply put, it's not a different command. It's just the same command it's always been. Do your work quietly, earn your own living. In verse 11, uh, we see that, uh, that, that Paul said these idols, idlers were not busy at work, but they were busy bodies. Meaning that they had free time, but how'd they spend their free time? Meddling. So rather than being busy at work, they're going around, you know, talking to other people, getting into other people's business, maybe spreading gossip. Maybe, but here's the, not only are they not working, but they're keeping other people from working. <laughs> they were a nuisance to others who were trying to mind their own affairs and work. This is one reason why they're called to work quietly. Just buckle down. Just do what you're supposed to do. All right. Just do your job. And sometimes the correction is just that simple, right? Sometimes the solution is just that simple. Hey, stop what you're doing. Just do your job. Go to work. If you're unwilling to work, stop being idle. Stop what you're doing. Honor God and get to work. We see here in verses 13 through 15 that there's a further command, though. Now, Paul also addresses the congregation that they should not grow weary in doing good. But keep away from the brother who continues to walk in idleness, having nothing to do with him, that he may, may be ashamed. But they're not to treat him as an enemy, as frustrated as they might be with them, but warn him as a brother. The first command is that they're not to grow weary. This is interesting because it seems like, it almost seems like a general command. Don't be weary in doing good. And they're, you know, they're just kind of thrown into this section. But I think what Paul is probably specifically addressing is consider those who were giving. Imagine those who were in the congregation who were working hard and were, and were watching other people, you know, not working. Imagine those who were giving faithfully week in, week out in the congregation and seeing the funds go to this situation. You can imagine how they would be frustrated, right? It would seem like there'd be a misappropriation of funds. You can imagine how some people might be tempted to like, what am I doing? Why am I still giving? 
They might want to hold back their financial support. They may not want to, to give. They may not want to continue working themselves. And Paul says, no, just because others are not doing right, church, you keep doing what's right. You continue honoring God, no matter what others are doing. You continue following the example and the tradition that we set before you in the name of Christ Jesus. There's real need in the church that doesn't go away. And people who cannot support themselves, who they can help. The need doesn't go away. The real need doesn't go away. The mission doesn't go away. So do not, do not, he's commanding them, do not let these idle brothers discourage you from doing the good that God calls you to do. Stand firm in the faith. But further, he does call them to keep away, to have nothing to do with this idle brother that he might be ashamed. He says, take note of these idle brothers. And there's a couple things probably. First of all, cut them off financially. There's, if they're having nothing to do, if nothing else, it means, well, stop funding their laziness, right? There's a difference between meeting a need and enabling someone who's idle. He says, put a separation between you and a brother like this, having nothing to do with him. Now, that may sound harsh and unloving, right? The church doesn't do, we don't, the church shouldn't cut people off, shouldn't separate. I assure you it's not. Just as, as a pause, there are times in Scripture we're going to come across commands that, that sound that sound hard. It, it's going to happen. Right? We're going to we're going to come across things that sound difficult and challenging. And I want to warn us against against thinking, "Wow, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound loving. That doesn't sound kind." Do you do we think that we're more loving than God? Do we think that we're more compassionate or understanding than God? I think, I think we need to be careful that we, that God needs instruction from us as to how best to run affairs and, and what he considers God who is love, who is mercy. No one loves sinners more than Jesus Christ who gave his life for sinners to redeem them. He knows best and we would do well to listen to him. And learn what true love is. And not what our own hearts tell us or what culture affirms as loving. He is best equipped. I think if we're going to love as God commands us, we need to have have our priorities in, in line. That's why the greatest commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself. It's love God first. If you're going to love your neighbor well and rightly, we have to love God first. Love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to live by his truth, uphold his glory, live by what he calls us to. Not Otherwise, if we love people first, then we'll start doing things like bending God's commands and or ignoring or reinterpreting in order to make room for an unrepentant sinner. Thinking that we're being compassionate. Thinking, I mean, how many churches, how many Christians have gone astray thinking that they're being loving, thinking they're being compassionate, but all they have done is secure someone in their sin instead of treating them as God commands. Love God first. If we love God first, we can love people well. It's a love filled with faith and truth. But we do love the church. Secondly, we love we love God, but secondly, we, we love his bride. We love the church. We value the community of faith. Hear this. Christ is not willing to sacrifice the entire purity and unity of a church to indulge one sinner who is unwilling to change. Church discipline is about loving people. 
It's loving individuals in the church who are wrestling with sin. It is patient. It is loving. It is kind. It is warning one another, praying for one another. And the goal of this, the goal of this separation ultimately is not just, it's not punishment. It's to snap him out of it. The purpose here of separating from the idol, from the idler and having nothing to do with him. Listen, Paul says is so that he may be ashamed. Maybe it'll snap him out. We've all experienced this thing called tough love. Maybe as a parent, you've had to employ that. Maybe just as an individual, you've experienced that. Right? And it's still love. It's just, it's just tough. The goal in, in this is redeeming someone from their sin, not confirming them in it. Not saying, okay, well, we love you, just, we'll be patient with you, keep doing what you're doing. At some point, there has to be a patience and then finally a no. This needs to stop. And we love you, but we're not going to walk with you in this. And because we love you, we're going to cut you off. We're going to make it hard for you to continue in your sin. In this case, if you will not listen to scripture and reason and warning, then let this person, this brother, experience the consequences of his actions. Proverbs 16, 26 says this, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. That's a proverb. That's God's scripture saying, hey, at some point, if someone is hungry enough, his appetite will work for him and will motivate him to do what he's supposed to do. Eventually, our circumstances motivate us to do things we're supposed to do. And so the point is that this brother would be ashamed so that he would come to his senses and get to work. You know, shame isn't all bad. You know, we, we do, we, we, some people will try to move heaven and earth to not feel shame, as though shame is a great evil. No, if you, if we feel shamed, there's, there can be a bad aspect of shame. Sometimes that is the enemy accusing us of our sin after Christ has forgiven it. That's not what I'm talking about, alright? If you are in Christ, and you are covered by His blood, and you are forgiven, that there is a, there is a way in which the, the enemy is accusing us and making us feel shame for forgiven sin. That's a different situation. But there are times when shame is really just our God-given conscience working as it ought. When we do bad, by God's grace, we should feel bad. And that the purpose of that is to direct us to do what is right. Now, if the entire church comes together and this brother who has lived with these brothers and sisters, who have experienced the word of God, the goodness of God, the Holy Spirit working among them, has enjoyed this community. If that entire body comes out and says, brother, we love you, what you're doing is wrong and needs to stop. May may that not be the situation that makes this person say, oh, wow, I'm wrong. I need to stop. I need to change. That seems to be what Paul is getting at here. When he says, have nothing to do with him. I think there is the other, the flip side of that. This is also, a, it's a protection for the rest of the congregation saying, hey, we, we love you, but we're not going to let your sinful actions infect and affect the rest of our congregation. We're called to work hard. We're called to, to, to use our funds to bless our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. We're, we, we have things we got to do. We got to be holy and pure. And we can't let your bad example harm the testimony of the rest of the church. 
and be a bad testimony to outsiders, right? This could hurt the testimony of the rest of the church, not walking wisely toward those who the the church is trying to reach with the gospel. So they warn him, not as an enemy, but as a brother. And part of that is love speaks hard truths, and I think once, if we can always use the best example possible, we use the example of Jesus Christ. I read this, this this past week. I'm reading the Gospel of Mark. I'm reading some of it with my son. And then I also, uh, I'm reading it in my own devotional life. You guys remember the story of the rich young man? The man who comes up to Jesus and says, you know, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is kind of testing him and he says, Well, what are the commands? You know, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, he goes through them and uh, the man says, I've done this ever since I was a child. Right? So think about this. If, you, if you're Jesus, you're a church, and somebody says, I am a moral person and I've got lots of money. In the flesh, wouldn't somebody want that person to join them? <laughs> right? If Jesus wasn't who he was, right? If somebody is trying to form a big band of followers or, you know, you could see his disciples being like, Jesus, we want this guy, <laughs> right? He's moral. He, he follows the law. And he, you know, he's got money, all that stuff. And listen to this. I love this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by, by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now Jesus is God in the flesh. And he knew exactly what was going to happen before he ever said it. But Jesus wasn't just trying to gain followers to pad his numbers. Jesus loved this man, and he knew by saying this hard truth that the man would leave and not follow him. But it's really important that Jesus, because he loved him and he saw who he was, he was willing to speak a hard truth. Christians, can we not follow the example of Jesus Christ? Love sometimes means saying something hard. Love always rejoices in the truth. And so if we love our children, if we love our family, if we love our neighbor, if we love our spouse, if we love one another in Christ, we're going to speak the truth in love. And sometimes that's a hard truth. But we trust that God knows what is best. And so there is a warning here for all of us, as some of us may be walking in idleness. Not working at all when you're able to. Now, I'm not talking about being, there, there, are, there, are, there are some of us who can't work because we were laid off, or because the job market is bad, or because of age, or because of health. Guys, there are legitimate reasons why people don't work, okay? Or sometimes there's just a gap in work, right? Sometimes there's a reason why you're not working for a short amount of time. I'm not speaking about these. These are legitimate causes. But if you're not working, not being productive, not being fruitful, not using your gifts... Are you being idle? Another way we can be idle though, maybe, maybe you have a job, but you're not, but maybe you're working part time when you could be working full time. Or maybe you're working a full time job, but let's be honest, the way you're working demonstrates idleness. 
You have a job, but you're idle within your work. Maybe you waste time. Maybe you spend time, you know, looking upon, looking, watching YouTube videos and you're on your phone instead of working. Maybe you go to great, put great effort in a, into appearing to be more busy than you are. You do poor work. Maybe you just do what is just barely necessary to make your, to keep your boss off your case so that you don't get in trouble, but you're not excelling. You're not working and keeping to grow. You're not doing excellence. You're not doing all that you can. But rather, you're just doing the bare minimum to keep your job. Is that not a form of idleness? Brothers and sisters, that's not God's will for you. It does not honor him. Rather, you should work quietly and do the best work to your ability. Because God is watching and so are outsiders. So is the watching world around us. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, they know us. And they may say, you know what, that Christian, they talk a lot about Jesus. They pray, they have little crosses at their desk or whatever else. But man, he's lazy. Man, I can't give a project to him and expect that it'll get done on time. What a testimony. We don't want that testimony. Rather, your work is an avenue for you to glorify God. That's why Paul talks to us and, he's, and in such, the gospel talks to us in such a way that work not as though you're working for men, but for God. You're not working for your boss. Ultimately, you're working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor him with your labor. Your work is an avenue for your witness. It's a testimony to the goodness of God. That you're working for more than a paycheck. It's a reflection on the Lord and his church. So glorify God in your work. Put away laziness, procrastination, and idleness. And honor God with your work. Let us go to our our closing section now. Where Paul gives kind of his benediction. A closing prayer for peace. He writes in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I love how Paul Paul ends his letters and often begins them with this call to grace and peace. And if you guys get emails from me, I, I've decided like that's how I like to end my emails and letters is you know grace and peace. He writes saying that Jesus is the Lord of peace. That's encouraging. That God Himself is the Lord of peace, that he himself is the source and sum of what peace is. In the midst of all that's going on in the Thessalonian church, afflictions, dealing with increasing wickedness around them, dealing with with problems within the church itself, need and want, in the midst of all that, he wishes them peace. He prays for peace. He promises them peace. Because the Lord of peace is with them. In the the presence of of Jesus Christ, Philippians tells us that there is no conflict because anyone who enters into the presence of Jesus Christ must bow before him. Because he is king. He himself is peace. Peace is his nature. Peace is, is is at his command. He can give it and he can take it away. And the peace that God gives is not reliant upon circumstances, which is crazy. One of my favorite passages growing up was Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, talking about a peace that he gives 
which transcends all understanding, which means it doesn't make sense. The peace Jesus says to his disciples uh, in the uproom discourse in John, that I, peace I give with you and peace not like the world. We, we do tend to have peace in the world when everything goes right. When the kids are in bed and the house is finally quiet and the dishes are done and I can sit in my chair, then I feel peace. For a little bit. But the peace in this world, how, how often is it, is it tied to circumstances? If everything goes right. Right? But the peace that God gives is not reliant upon that. There's a reason why Christ, when the storm was rocking the boat and all the disciples were freaking out, and they're saying, we're going to die. And there's a reason why Jesus could sleep in the back of the boat. Because he is the Lord of peace. Nothing scares him. No, no, no conflict comes against him that he can't handle. And he freely gives us this peace. And that's why Paul prays. He says, the Lord of peace, your Lord, may he grant you peace in any and every circumstance. I love that. There's no circumstance that God cannot grant you peace. None. Which is crazy to think about. And the history of the church testifies to this. How many saints have gone to the gallows, have, have gone to, 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 to martyrdom, have gone to be burned at the stake at perfect peace with the Lord, praising God? How many saints have gone to their deathbeds, even our own congregation, with a sense of joy and peace that they delight to get to see their Savior? That not even death can scare them. In war and in peacetime, in youth and in old age, in death and life, in sickness and in health, in poverty or wealth, when everything goes right in your life or whether everything goes wrong, there is a peace which transcends all understanding. And it is all from the Lord of peace. That's why Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment while he's in prison waiting for his head to be cut off. Because he knows the Lord of peace. And so Paul writes and he says, man, the peace that this Lord Jesus gives, I pray that you would have it. By the way, it's yours already in Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, you have the fullness of his covenant and his promises. You have the covenant of peace. Well, the world's peace that we, that we sometimes hunger for, <laughs> that I hunger for, I want a I want peace and quiet, right? But that's fleeting, flimsy, it's temporary, it's uncertain. It's more often an illusion than a reality. It's a piece of compromise or ignoring tough circumstances. It's a piece that we, that we, we ignore our tough circumstances by watching a television show or taking a drink or doing something else. That's no, that's no peace at all. Jesus quiets the soul and he sets it God's word. He sets it facing towards the Lord so that all the things, all the troubles of this world just kind of fall to the wayside in the light of God's glory and grace as we love to sing. And so Paul says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And he ends with the great, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's my prayer for you today as well. Would you pray with me?
Lord God, we give you praise. We thank you, God, that you call us out of sin, Lord. And today we read about the, the sin of idleness, Lord, which many of us struggle with. Many others may struggle with overworking, Lord, and not, not, not paying attention to rest. But Lord, there is no shortage of sins that we deal with, that we struggle with, whether it's pride or vanity or lust, a desire for wealth, Lord, that overtakes all other desires, selfishness, greed. Lord, we, we all struggle with a variety of sins. And we thank you, God, that you call us out of those sins, that you redeem us. Lord, and I pray for those who are here today, God, that you would call them from their sins into your grace. Lord, that you would allow their consciences to be stirred and they would confess and repent and turn away and come to the Lord of grace and peace. That they would find true forgiveness and joy. Lord, we're thankful that you give us a peace which transcends all understanding. God, And I pray that we would receive that and delight in you and that you would receive glory and honor and praise. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we worship?